You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 31, for December 14th, 2008. Warning, this episode contains adult language and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, Metamorphs, and Merry Christmas! Less than two weeks away now, and I'm looking forward to going back to Michigan to visit my friends and family. In truth, this really hasn't felt like much of a holiday season to me. Part of that probably has to do with living in California, where snow is something you go to visit instead of having it come to you. And part of it has to do with the general lack of Christmas decorations around here except at the malls, which try to take traditional holiday sayings and twist them into advertising slogans to get people to buy more stuff. I could go into a long and sarcastic rant here about the obsessive materialism of the consumer culture, but really, do we need any more reminders that our culture is screwed up? The current state of the U.S. economy is a far better teacher on the ills of materialism and deficit spending than anything I could say. Instead, I'll just leave you with this recommendation. Take some time this holiday season to help out someone who's worse off than you are. And if you can still listen to this show, there are plenty of people who fit that definition. Trust me, it feels a whole lot better than standing in line at the mall. That having been said, if you do feel the need to buy people presents this year, how about something for the other metamorphs on your Christmas list? We have a new Metamorph City store over at Zazzle.com where we're selling swag with the Metamore City logo and our kick-ass cover art by Jeff Himmelman. You can find it over at Zazzle.com, that's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com, slash C-W-L-E-S-T-E-R. And I'll also put a link in the show notes. Now then, we got a ton of feedback to get through at the end of the show, so let's go ahead and get back to making the cut. I had to cut chapter 21 in half due to time considerations, so here is part two, and here to introduce it once again is Michael Spence. Greetings, Metamorphs. This is Michael Spence, whom you may have heard as the announcer of the Astral Audio Experience, the analyst in 118 Migration, and most recently as Carol Doran in Star Wars, codename Starkeeper. On the bright side, you can also read my web column on science fiction, fantasy, systematic theology, the podcast repertory theater, and other matters at www.michaelspence.us. Now, here is Making the Cut, the story, so far. In Part 1 of Chapter 21, Danny regained control of her body from her alter ego, Daniel, only to discover that she was imprisoned in Artax's secret containment facility for recovering mind control victims. Her rage at being taken away from Jared soon gave way to tears and despair as she realized that Jared was lost to her forever. Daniel's former girlfriend Rebecca was distressed to see Danny in so much pain, but Artax told her that Danny would need time before they would be able to help her. Jared's brainwashing might fade on its own, but they would need to give Danny a few days in confinement before they could be sure. Across town, Sasha began her investigation into Fiona's subconscious, hoping to find out why large blocks of her childhood memories seemed to be missing. Sasha found a series of related memories that all seemed to be driven by the same hidden motive, something deeply rooted in Fiona's past that Fiona herself was unaware of. Before Sasha could go deeper, she was assaulted by a psychic guardian that stood guard over the source of Fiona's pain. The guardian lashed out at Sasha, using Fiona's body to try to strangle her. She managed to awaken Fiona's conscious mind before Fiona could do serious damage, but the event proved to both of them that it was going to take a long time to break through Fiona's defenses. Meanwhile, Hive Elder Miriam Bakhtavar was investigating the disappearance of one of her agents, the psyop Egan Hunter. Egan had been following up a lead on the whereabouts of Victor and Abby when he vanished. Miriam told her aide, Peter, to send out search teams for Egan. Since she now knew that Victor had betrayed the collective to the vampires, something she learned from the runner Callie Linder, she also gave instructions for Victor to be killed on sight. 
Unbeknownst to Miriam, though, Victor had plans of his own. After learning that Miriam was the one behind the search for him and Abby, Victor called up his contact in the Vampire Syndicate, the security chief known as William Westerson. Victor told him that Miriam was responsible for the recent raid on Viscount Security Solutions, which had been both costly and embarrassing for the Vampire's organization. Victor promised to tell Westerson where, when, and how to capture the troublesome elder, thus solving both of their problems at a single stroke. The clock read a quarter to seven when the door to Danny's cell opened and Sasha walked in carrying a tray full of food. Someone slid a chair into the room behind her, then the door closed and bolted shut. The petite blonde woman looked around at all the pictures, the desk chair, the television, everything that Danny had smashed earlier, all of it once more intact, and apparently none the worse for wear. She shook her head and whistled. That is both the most useful and the scariest bit of magic I think I've ever personally seen. Danny sat on the bed and glared at her, saying nothing. I brought you some dinner, Sasha said, setting the tray on the table. It's from that Rukelian place on 87th that Daniel likes. She glanced at Danny and showed her a half-smile. I hope that's all right. I haven't gotten to know you all that well yet, so I had to make a guess that the two of you would have similar tastes. She went back over to her chair by the door and sat down, crossing one foot over the other and folding her hands in her lap. Danny was hungry enough that she would have been tempted by anything that even remotely resembled food. The smell of the lamb curry was like a deva promising a passport to paradise. But she hadn't forgotten for a moment where she was. It's a trick. You've done something to the food. Drugs, maybe, or some kind of potion. Sasha's eyebrows shot up. What makes you think we would do something like that? She kept her tone neutral, as though she were merely politely interested in a matter that had nothing to do with her personally. Fucking shrinks. Well, let's see, Danny said, her voice dripping with sarcasm. You take me away from the man I love, stick me in a private prison run by a crazy wizard, and then you say you're going to cure me of this mysterious, horrible affliction that nobody's ever heard of and nobody's quite sure even exists. In fact, the only symptom seems to be that I was actually happy for once in my life. She spread her hands and gave Sasha a wide-eyed, mock-innocent expression. Gosh, I don't know, Sasha. Why do you think I'm suspicious? The corner of Sasha's mouth twitched, some facial expression that she covered before it could even show itself. Her crystal blue eyes turned grave. The food is safe, Danny. No drugs, no magic. She lifted a hand from her lap and held it out towards Danny. Fingers splayed. Look, I'm dropping my shields. Look in my mind and see for yourself. Danny glanced at the food, then back at Sasha. You're just gonna try and get in my head. Sasha sighed and rubbed her temples with her other hand. (sighs) Danny, if I really wanted to get into your mind, I wouldn't need to trick you to do it. Danny scowled, but she got to her feet and cautiously approached the woman. Stretching out one hand, she lightly touched her fingertips to Sasha's palm. She reached out with her own meager telepathic talent and combed through Sasha's thoughts, looking for any sign that she was lying about the food. As near as she could tell, she wasn't. On the other hand, she did find memories of Sasha and Rebecca doing some kind of incantation to help Daniel hijack her mind. Her fist clenched, and she briefly entertained the thought of driving it straight into Sasha's face. She fought back the impulse, though, because she could also see why the two women had done what they did. For all that their meddling had screwed up Danny's life, they had done it out of love. They had really, honestly believed that they were helping her. Saving her, even. They had a bunch of stupid, crazy ideas about Jared. And they think I'm paranoid. But they were driven by compassion and genuine affection. Not just for Daniel, as she might have guessed, but for Daniel and Danny as a unified person. Even after the deliberately cruel things Danny had said to Rebecca, they still cared about her. Which made it really hard for Danny to hate them. She snatched her hand away from Sasha's, growling in disgust. 
She stalked across the room, sat down, and began to eat. After she had polished off the curry, she took a long drink from the glass of mango juice that Sasha had ever so thoughtfully included. Then she got up and straddled the chair backwards, resting her arms on the seat back. Like it or not, she knew she wasn't getting out of here until she played Sasha's little game and answered her questions. Maybe Danny could persuade her to let her go if she cooperated. I know you think you're helping me, but you guys would have done a lot more good if you just left me the hell alone. Sasha pulled her chair halfway across the room and sat down again. I'm not so sure about that. Think about it, Danny. You were completely repressing half of yourself. You can see Daniel's memories, right? You know how hurt he was by what you did to him. You know how cut off he felt, how isolated, how rejected. You told Rebecca that he was dead, but that wasn't really true. He was just trapped inside you and couldn't get out. Danny looked down at the floor, feeling the heat rise into her cheeks. Look, I'm sorry for what Daniel was going through. I didn't realize that was happening to him. Hells, I didn't even know there was a him that was separate from me. She looked back at Sasha and narrowed her eyes. But that doesn't give him the right to screw up my life. I was repressing him without realizing it. He kidnapped me and put me in this glorified jail cell. How is that any better? If he were planning on leaving you here, it wouldn't be. But that isn't what he wants. Look inside your shared memories, Danny. He wants to find a way to live with you. He didn't have to do this. We could have worked something out with Jared. If he could have just... just talked to me, or... I don't know, done something to let us know he was there. We could have made it work. Sasha sat back in her chair and steepled her fingers. She fell silent for a long moment. Her brow furrowed in thought. Danny took a piece of flatbread from the tray and mopped up a bit of vegetable korma while she waited for the other woman to speak. Something I'm curious about, Sasha said at last, touching the tips of her index fingers to her bottom lip. After you had sex with Jared that first time, did you ever change back into Daniel? Danny shook her head. Why not? Danny chewed, swallowed, and took another drink before answering. I didn't like it. She shrugged. Didn't want to remind myself of the old me anymore. And why was Daniel so totally connected in your mind to your old self? After all, you became an androgyne, not a full-blooded woman. Daniel's as much a part of who you are now as Danny is. Most androgynes don't spend all their time in just one gender, do they? Danny frowned, thinking of Evan and Ava. She'd gotten most of her advice from Ava, but Evan had been the one who'd picked up the phone as often as not. I guess not. Sasha gestured toward Danny with one hand. So why did you never change back? I know there were parts of Daniel's life he enjoyed. Skyball and martial arts, just to name two. Have you played any pickup games since you started dating Jared? Have you been to the Somnock even once? Danny shook her head again. Why not? Those used to be regular pastimes, things you liked doing. Danny sighed. She felt inarticulate, uncomfortable with Sasha's questions, and that frustrated her. I don't know. It just never felt right. Those were the things Daniel did, and I felt more at home being Danny. Sasha leaned forward, gazing at her intently. And what does Danny enjoy? What do you like doing, instead of playing skyball or visiting the Somnock? Danny considered that. Jared and I go dancing. We go for walks. I've been helping him organize his photo albums. I like cooking with him. She smiled. This one time we went to the library and spent the evening looking for the worst, sappiest love poetry we could find and then reading it to each other. Anything else? Anything that doesn't involve Jared? Danny glared at her. We're in love, Sasha. We like spending time together. Even people in love have their own hobbies and pastimes. Rebecca paints. Brian has a wargaming group that he meets with in a virtual. Fiona competes in free-running tournaments. She grinned. Me? I write slash fiction for popular TV shows. Yes, we love each other, and we spend a lot of time together, but we do have lives of our own. What does Danny like to do? Danny frowned and turned back to her plate, pushing the remains of the food in little circles. I guess I haven't given that much thought. 
Everything with Jared happened so fast, I haven't needed to worry about that. Whenever I'm around him, just being with him is enough. And that's part of what concerns me. Healthy people don't orient their entire lives around another person, Danny. Like you said, that relationship with Jared happened fast. So fast that you haven't figured out who you are when you aren't around him. And in the process, it looks like any part of you that wasn't part of that relationship got pushed to the back and suppressed. Danny turned back to Sasha, letting their eyes meet. A loud and defensive corner of her mind screamed at her that Sasha was trying to trick her, trying to manipulate her, trying to brainwash her in the same way that they had accused Jared of doing. But she looked in Sasha's eyes and saw only genuine, honest concern. Yes, Sasha was a shrink. Yes, she was skilled at working people over. And yes, she was one heck of a telepath. But right now, Danny didn't believe Sasha was trying to trick her. And besides, what she had said about healthy people not building their lives around one person, that had the unpleasant sting of truth. She looked away again. Maybe... maybe you're right. Tears rose unexpectedly in her eyes, and she wiped them away. But damn it, I was happy, Sasha. So what if that's not healthy? She looked back at Sasha, her voice pleading. I had someone who loved me, and a place where I belonged. That's more than Daniel had. More tears came, and Danny squeezed her eyes shut as she covered her face with her hand. A moment later, she felt small, gentle hands take hold of her free hand. Sasha's presence flowed up to the edges of her mind, offering comfort if Danny were willing to take it. You still do have someone who loves you, Danny. Someone who loves all of you. She's sitting outside right now and listening to us. She wants to talk to you, if you're willing. Danny snorted as she raised a paper-thin wall between her mind and Sasha's. <laughs> Does she know that Brian told Daniel not to fuck her until the rest of you give him your blessing? God, you treat her like a little kid. Sasha's grip on her hand tightened. Not in anger, but just enough to make sure Danny paid attention to her. Fiona and I had the same talk with Rebecca while Brian was talking to you. She understands how we feel and agreed to respect our wishes. That's not treating her like a child. It's being open and honest with each other and setting boundaries that honor our commitment to each other. That's how you make relationships work. Sasha withdrew her mind from Danny's, respecting the boundary that she had put in place. She let go of Danny's hand and rose to her feet. You may not believe this right now, but we all care about you, Danny. We want to help you find that place of belonging that you're looking for. But we're not going to let you lock up Daniel again in order to do it. If you want to be happy, if you want to find a way to live your life as a whole, complete person, then you're going to have to figure out how to get along with Daniel. Danny said nothing. She wanted to trust Sasha. She wanted to believe that things could work out that she could find a way to live with Daniel without them always fighting each other. But she still loved Jared, and being separated from him hurt more than it had hurt when Daniel had been separated from Rebecca. A man she had known for a few weeks was inside her heart as thoroughly as the woman Daniel had grown up loving. It was intense and passionate and surprising and strange. Very, very strange. She hadn't wanted to think about it before, but maybe that meant something. Do you want me to send Becca in? Danny shook her head. No, not yet. I think... I think I need to talk to Evan and Ava. Sasha paused. Who? Evan and Ava Salindi. Danny said, looking up at her again. They're the ones that gave me the idea to try being an androgyne. I want to see them. She crossed her arms and set her jaw. Unless the warden isn't allowing visitors? Sasha winced at that, but she nodded. All right. How can I get in touch with them? Danny grabbed a pencil and a notepad from the desk and wrote down the androgyne's phone number. She tore off the top sheet and handed it to Sasha. They're pretty easy to get a hold of. Just don't call them before 10 a.m. on the weekends. Evan's not exactly a morning person. Sasha smirked and tucked the paper into her pocket. I'll get them here as soon as I can. 
in the meantime, you might want to think about getting some rest. Yeah, abduction takes a lot out of a girl. Danny refrained from saying the words, and she hoped that Sasha hadn't heard them. The blonde left without further comment. When she was gone, Danny turned around and finished her meal. As she pushed back her tray, her eyes fell on the notepad. The pencil was in her hand before she'd given it much thought. She wrote across the top of the pad in large block letters, Who I am when I'm not with Jared. She underlined it, then wrote a number one on the line below it. She paused, pencil poised over the notepad, and thought. She sat there like that for a very long time. Miriam sat in the window seat near the middle of the subway train, watching as the lights of the tunnel raced by. No one took the seat next to her, but no one paid her any real attention either. The gray was like that. As long as she didn't do anything too unusual, the mental screens that she wrapped around herself would ensure that no one remembered her face, her name, or even her gender. They had taught her to use it when she first became an elder, in order to separate her role as the voice of the hive from her role as an individual member. She had soon found that it had other uses as well. The gray wasn't quite invisibility, but in some ways it was even better. For one thing, an invisible person would constantly have people running into her. She was coming home after a long meeting with the other elders of the Metamore Hive. She could have taken a taxi, or requisitioned a private skimmer, but Miriam preferred the trains. A skimmer could be tracked fairly easily, but in the subway system she could move like a ghost, coming and going as her duties required without anyone ever being the wiser. Besides, her job was lonely enough that she enjoyed being out among people even if she rarely interacted with them. At the moment, though, she wasn't in the mood for people-watching. The meeting with the other elders had been tense, to say the least. Most of them had written off Abby Preston as a lost cause, in spite of her potential. They were content to wait for her to return on her own, if she ever did so. Miriam, of course, knew enough about Victor now that she suspected Abby couldn't return home, even if she wanted to. Miriam told the other elders that the runner, Callie Linder, had implicated Victor as an agent of the Vampire Syndicate, but she had kept back the full story of how long Victor had been working for them. She still didn't have a satisfactory answer for why she had been unable to read Victor's mind. Until she did, she didn't want to weaken her own position in leadership by admitting how Victor had murdered his fellow size and pinned the blame for his actions on Philippe Devereaux. Without that crucial piece of information, the elders were content to leave Victor alone. The chief priority now was decoding the vampire's nanotech virus and developing a counter for it. The vamps no doubt considered Victor a valuable ally, and moving against him might provoke them to unleash the nanos before the hive was ready. And in the meantime, Abby Preston is left to fend for herself, Miriam thought in disgust. It continually amazed her how the elders could be so cautious about endangering their own lives, while at the same time they let teeps like Abby, Brian, and Fiona, the bright young future of the collective, put themselves in grave danger for the sake of the Hive's long-term goals. Miriam had long argued that the young were the Hive's most precious resource, far more important than the elders themselves, many of whom were past the age of childbearing. Of course, given that she was a deputy headmistress at Westfall, that position was only to be expected, and perhaps for that reason, the other elders gave it little weight. She sighed. We've shaped our entire society around maximizing reproduction, yet when the time comes to endanger our own lives for the sake of those children, we hesitate. Making sacrifices for the next generation is so much easier to think about in the abstract. She looked around the subway car, wondering if she would see any children among the passengers. She was somewhat surprised to find that she was alone. The other passengers must have all gotten off at previous stops. Oh, that's another thing about the grave. There is no one to stop you from sinking into your own little world. She glanced at the clock and marveled again when she saw that it was only a quarter to midnight. Fairly late, certainly, but on Saturdays the trains ran until three in the morning. She would have expected at least some other passengers to be headed uptown at this hour. 
A soft, prickling sensation began to crawl down Miriam's neck, a gentle but persistent urging that she hadn't felt in a long time. She had learned to pay attention to that feeling. Getting to her feet, she went over to the map and looked for the glowing red LED that showed the train's present location. They were well out of the downtown district, and the next two stops were both closed for renovation. The nearest exit was 15 minutes away. She had just processed the implications of that when the lights in the subway car abruptly went out. The overhead fluorescent panels, the running lights on the floor, even the exit signs and the little LED on the map, all of them went black at once, plunging the car into total darkness. Even the lights in the tunnel outside seemed to be out of commission. The darkness wrapped itself around Miriam like a serpent, cold, supple, and suffocating. She closed her eyes and took a deep breath, focusing her psychometabolic power on her sense of sight. When she opened her eyes, she could see again, albeit in fuzzy shades of black and white. Infrared vision wasn't very good for making out details, but it was enough to let her defend herself. She kept taking deep, steady breaths as she channeled the rest of her power into enhancing her strength and agility. She was concerned, of course, frightened even, but she was far from defenseless. She had every reason to be confident in her abilities. Then the doors opened at both ends of the subway car, and her confidence slipped away like sand through her fingers. There were twelve of them, six on each side, a mixture of men and women, but all of them with athletic frames, and a lean, hungry look in their softly glowing eyes. They were armed with electric stun wands, clubs, chains, and other implements of mayhem, weapons designed to incapacitate and capture rather than kill. But most disconcerting of all was the fact that they all looked dark. She saw some with Arambian features, some that had to be milk-white Northlanders, and a whole range of faces in between, but right now all of them looked dark gray. In the black-and-white world of Miriam's infravision, that could only mean one thing. Their bodies were barely above room temperature. Fighting down a surge of fear, she opened her ears and listened. She couldn't hear a single heartbeat among them. The group in front of her parted, making way for a young man in a leather jacket. He was of average height, with short, spiky hair, angular features, and eyebrows that looked like they had been sculpted. His expression was one of smug self-assurance, with a crooked sneer that promised cruelty untempered by human compassion. He raised a stun wand in his manicured fingers and crossed it over his chest, sketching a mocking bow toward Miriam. Good evening, Ms. Bakhtavar, the vampire said, grinning like death itself. We'd like to talk to you about the opportunity of a lifetime, so to speak. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. The following message has been approved by the Inner Council of the SSDWC, the Secret Society for Delayed World Conquest. We here at the SSDWC would like to remind you that playing with either robot weaponry or skyscraper infrastructure is all well and good until somebody loses an I-beam. I'm Kim, the comic book goddess, and I'd like to invite you to a new temple. Here at the Geek Pantheon, we minister to the spiritual needs of our subculture and apply our way of life to the mainstream. We can show you how the deities of geekdom are numerous as grains of sand. There's a little geek in everyone, if you look closely. We'll bring you the gods and goddesses of geekdom to bestow knowledge you won't find anywhere else. As well as commentary from the SSDWC, the Secret Society for Delayed World Conquest. And, of course, your moment of Kim. So join us for talk about everything from alignment to zombies, and all those things that you thought wouldn't fit in between. Geek Pantheon and your moment of Kim. Broaden your geek horizons. Don't enter your battle of wits unarmed. Find us at geekpantheon.com. Since it's time to record a promo, let's see what the rest of the world thinks about Brain Douche. I email here from Murph. Um, not Murlapke, another Murph. I am not going to read it, though. 
from uh, a lady called Meredith at braindouche.net. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready for this? <laughs> it's called Brain Douche. Now, I can't say I'm in love with the name of his podcast, but it's it's kind of odd. Meredith, it's not that we're blaming you, <laughs> Meredith, but the reality is we're, we're kind of cursing your name. <laughs> And and then lighting things on fire and then cursing it again. Just so that you know. Nothing personal. Yeah. Freeform audio arts at www.braindouche.net. Come get that fresh, clean feeling. Hello, this is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of the Antithesis series, a science fiction espionage thriller that you can find at www.jdsawyer.net. And you're listening to the excellent Metamore City Podcast. Thank you very much, Dan. And for those of you who have not yet heard Dan Sawyer's novel Antithesis, what are you waiting for? Get out there over to jdsawyer.net. That's J-D-S-A-W-Y-E-R, and check it out, because I just caught up on this uh, novel recently. I had been kind of putting it off, you know, another podcast novel, who's got the time, right? But I had gotten to know Dan, and he and his wife Kitty and I had gotten to be some pretty good friends over the last couple of months since the uh, meeting that we did over at Jupiter in downtown Berkeley. And so I finally said, well, hey, if I know this guy, I'm going to actually hang out with him. I should probably listen to his story. And (laughs) I was blown away. The guy writes just amazingly. Um, It is a slow story to get off the ground. But if you guys are listening to Making the Cut, you're used to that. And Dan has one of the strongest grasps of the English language of anybody that I know just a really, really smart guy and a really, really nice guy. And the story that he's telling with uh, these characters in Antithesis is just... I'm totally hooked. I cannot wait to see where this story goes. He's spinning together this tale about revolution and conspiracies and backdoor, under-the-table dirty dealings in the reaches of space you know, colonists on the moon and Mars working for revolution. It's just, it's great stuff. It's really, really great stuff. So I strongly recommend that if you have any love for Metamore City, and if you don't, why would you be listening to this? uh, You guys will adore the whole Antithesis series. So get out over to jdsawyer.net and check it out, because if you don't, you are missing out. Now, I apologize for that uh, nasty cliffhanger that I left you guys on. Wait, what am I saying? No, I don't. I love doing that to you people. Um, So I'm sure that there are some of you guys who are screaming my name right now. Lester! Um, And if so, yay! (laughs) This is my evil laugh. (laughs) But yes, I am leaving you stuck there with, sadly, only about 18 minutes of story today. However, today is going to be a jumbo feedback episode. That's why I did not use the usual end credit music. Uh, It's kind of a tradition now, I guess if you do it two years in a row, it's a tradition, of having an extended feedback episode on or around the Christmas holiday season. And since this is falling at just about the right time for that, I figured we'll go ahead and clear out the logs here and share what other people have been saying about the show. Chris, good day, mate. It's the governor here from Melbourne Down Under. I'm only a newcomer to podcast audio drama, but I'm simply blown away by the quality of your writing and production. The short stories you first released did a great job of weaving the rich tapestry that is the backdrop of Minimal City. This really allowed me to immerse myself so much quicker into the main story. I caught your promo on Nobilis's site barely two weeks ago, and now I am already up to date. Bugger. Anyway, you're doing great stuff, so you have another loyal listener here. I am spreading the word on your site down under, 
starting with my connections to my old D&D and Star Frontiers role-playing crew. Okay then, mate. Take it easy. Cheers. Well, thank you very much there, Governor. And I'm sure that I absolutely butchered that accent, so my apologies in advance. But thank you very much for sending that in. I love getting feedback from my listeners. I especially love getting feedback from people on other parts of the globe who can't call into the voicemail line, which, by the way, is 206-203-0994. And I'm glad that the short stories worked well to get you into the story, into the world of Metamore. That is what they were designed to do. So hopefully that will also be the case for other people who have discovered the show. And if you are enjoying those short stories and hoping to see more of them, don't worry, you will. I have already written two or three additional short stories that have not yet appeared on the podcast, and I have ideas for a few more. So worry not, after we get through making the cut, those tales will be told. Hi, Chris. This is Roger calling from Phoenix, Arizona. I just wanted to say thank you for putting out this superior podcast that you have with Metamore City. It is just so awesome. I look forward to it. I really love it, and I listen to it as soon as the episode comes out. Thank you so much, and keep up the the great work. Bye. Thanks, Roger. I'm really glad that you're enjoying the show so much, and I'm really glad that you called in. Um, certainly that whole wanting to listen to the episode as soon as it comes out thing is exactly what we podcasters strive for. So knowing that I hit the mark, definitely an encouragement. Thanks a lot. All right, Lester, I promised you that I called and I'm calling. That's a good episode. I really like that one. I like how it started out with her, with Danny already being the predominant. You didn't have to go, hadn't, don't have to witness the change again. Um, I like how he just went straight into Danny being trapped in the room and, and uh, uh, her frustration and anger with dealing with that. Um, I'm looking forward to more of it. Good going. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. And that was T.R. Reed, who some of you may know from his many, many Bitstrips comics about various podcasters, including the ongoing saga of T. Morris and his missing Kraken's jersey. Thank you very much for calling in with your thoughts, TR. And yeah, when possible, I do try to cut to the chase and avoid uh, repeating myself unnecessarily, particularly since this is already a beast of a book and I didn't need to do anything to make it any longer than it already was. So I'm glad that you enjoyed Danny's little breakdown. And when you ask to see more... I'm hoping you didn't mean more emotional trauma for poor Danny, because, geez, hasn't she been through enough already? Seriously, though, thanks for calling in. Hello, Chris. This is Amy Bowen, a.k.a. the Deadpan Ambassador, and the author of The Questers from FPM, a fantasy serial released as part of the Deadpan podcast at jackmangan.com. I have a question for you. Back in Chapter 19 of Making the Cut, someone made a reference to taking Daniel off to see the wizard. It made me wonder, what were the book and or movie The Wizard of Oz like in the Metamore City universe, a world where there's always been magic in the real world? Did you think about that when you were writing that scene? If so, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I absolutely love your show, by the way. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Amy. Great question. Thanks for calling in. The thing you need to know to understand The Wizard of Oz is that it was written as a political allegory. In those days, the big businesses of the East Coast and the mining and railroad companies in the West were both teaming up to maximize their profits at the expense of the plain folks in the Midwest, places like Kansas. That's why the Wicked Witches in the book were from the West and the East. The populist movement rose up in response to this situation, and they campaigned for a looser money supply to make it easier to lend money to farmers and small business people. Since the dollar was pegged to the gold standard at the time, the treasury could only issue money if they had gold to back up its value. The populists wanted the government to issue money that was backed by silver, which was much more plentiful and would thus allow the treasury to print more money. The populists believed that this change from gold to silver would break the power of the big banking concerns in the East, 
and free the people of the Midwest from their financial tyranny. That's why when Dorothy arrives in Oz, O-Z, ounce, like gold, get it, ha ha, she crushes the Wicked Witch of the East and takes her silver shoes, not the ruby ones you saw in the movie. She then goes to see the wizard, who is an allegory of President William McKinley, who was known in those days as the Wizard of Missouri because of his shrewd political skills. There are many other allegories in the book as well. Scarecrow represents the farmers, the Tin Man is the industrial workers, and the Cowardly Lion is William Jennings Bryan, the Democratic politician who lost the presidential election four times and battled with the Republicans for years over the gold versus silver debate. Together, Dorothy and her alliance of farmers, factory workers, and sympathetic politicians defeats the evil business tycoons of the East and the West, and then confront the wizard, who turns out to have no power at all beyond his tricks and clever words, which of course is true of just about any president. Now, obviously, this is a very political story that was written for a very specific time and place in American history, so no exact parallel to The Wizard of Oz was ever written in Metamore's world. However, the continent of Galindor has seen some big populist battles over the years in politics, and the biggest came from the debates in various nations over whether to give up their independence and become part of the Empire of Metamore. Majestrix Kaya never annexed any of her neighbors through wars of aggression, but she was a master at picking up the pieces when neighboring states fell apart due to civil war or a ruined economy. One of these political fights took place in the Flatlands, which was a fairly weak confederation on the plains of central Galendor. It was a land very much like Dorothy's Kansas, and big business interests from Sathmore to the west and Pyralis and Inador to the south were looking to carve up its territory and exploit its natural resources. Now, the Flatlanders were hardy, independent types, and even when their economy teetered on the brink of collapse, there was a lot of resistance to Kaya's offer to join the empire especially among those in the government who might stand to lose their jobs under the new regime. One clever author who favored annexation wrote an allegory somewhat similar to The Wizard of Oz, hoping to build popular support for the Empire by showing the common folks that Majestrix Kaya was on their side. She was, of course, the good witch of the North in that story, and the wizard was the corrupt and blustering prime minister who was adamantly opposed to annexation. In the Flatlander version of the story, the wizard turns out to be a charlatan who has fooled the people into thinking he has great magical powers, something that would have worked for that audience, since magic is a lot harder to pull off in the Flatlands than it is in Metamore Valley. Much like L. Frank Baum's story, the Flatlander tale entered the popular culture, and it became the basis for a whole series of children's novels, and most of the people who have read the stories have no idea of their original message. Hope that answers your question to your satisfaction, Amy, and thanks again for calling in. Hello, Chris. My name is Beth Davis. I'm from Pennsylvania, and I am a loyal metamorph. I started late to your story, but I was quickly hooked, and I'm now caught up and waiting anxiously for each new episode. I do have to take issue with you, however. By my count, we have, what, 10 episodes left in Making the Cut? This is wholly unacceptable. At the very least, I think that you should have to provide for us some sort of rehab for those of us who are completely hooked on the story. It just can't end. It can't. Yes, clearly I'm in the denial stage of grief at this point. By the way, look out for that anger stage. It's a doozy. But anyway, your work is just amazing, and I love losing myself in Metamorph City. Your characters, while completely fantastical, are also incredibly real. They're just normal folks with extraordinary gifts. Kudos, my friend, and of course, keep up the good work. One thing, though, what happens when making the cut ends? There, there is more, right? What exactly would we have to do to get you to write more? Hmm, you might have moved on to the bargaining stage. Hey there, Beth. Thanks for calling in. Don't worry about the whole bargaining thing, because I can guarantee you that there are a lot more Metamore City stories yet to come. Making the Cut is, after all, only a prequel. It was created in order to set the stage for everything that's going to happen in the future. We still have to go back to our dear friends in the Metamore City Police Department, who have many interesting things that are about to happen to them, both wondrous and terrifying in the years to come. And Making the Cut is all taking place about three to five years before any of the stories that started this series. 
So, yes, there is more coming, and once we finish making the cut, I am going to be working on those stories. Now I will warn you now that the next big novel in the Metamore City cycle, which I am titling Things Unseen, is still in the planning stages, and it's probably going to take me a while to sort this out, because it's a different kind of story from anything I've told before. Now, what that means is that after making the cut is finished, we are going to be going on a bit of a hiatus. I am not sure yet exactly what form that hiatus is going to take. I may dial back Metamore City Podcast to a monthly show um, while I am working on getting the story finished because I do not want to have another situation going on where I am podcasting and I don't know what the end of the story is. I did that with making the cut. Don't want to go through that again. Thank you very much. So the other option is that we may end up doing short stories, which take, you know, one episode, two episodes, three episodes to tell, and then take a break in between those. So the the feed would be more intermittent rather than once a month, because I really wouldn't want to leave you guys with a cliffhanger in the middle of a short story um, from one month to the next. That doesn't seem fair to me. So what you will most likely see is me putting out a short story and then taking a few weeks off and then putting out another short story and then taking a few weeks off. If I have any guest stories from other authors, those may get slotted into the breaks in between. I know that uh, Dan Sawyer is working on a Metamore City short story for me, and Nobilis is also working on another story that is probably going to be somewhat longish based on what I have seen thus far and of course Brian Watson still has a story or two left to tell in his cycle with um, the characters of Artax and Brian so there will be more stories down the pike and not just from me and it is my hope that those stories will help to fill in some of the other corners of the world and get you guys ready in preparation for the debut of Things Unseen when it is ready to go. So that's my offer, Beth, and while you may not be able to bargain with grief, in this case, hopefully you will agree that you're getting a pretty sweet deal about it. Hey, Chris, this is Chris from the podcast novel Outcast. Uh, I just wanted to drop a line and congratulate you on hitting episode number 30 of Metamore City. Um, I have been absolutely enjoying the podcast, literally from episode one. Uh, the story's been great. I've enjoyed the characters, and I'm just loving how making the cut is working out. It is about 6.40 a.m., uh, where I am right now in Calgary. I'm just actually finishing another grueling Saturday delivering newspapers. And i got to say, it's been podcasts like yours and a few others that have actually helped keep me going on the nights where I have to do this thing solo. Uh, It's usually my wife and me doing it, but she's not here today. So, Anyway, I just wanted to, again, congratulate you on hitting episode 30, and I also wanted to thank you for putting together such an excellent podcast. The voice acting is great. I love the quality of it. It's absolutely excellent, and like I said, it really helps get me through these very long, very lonely morning shifts doing newspapers. Anyways, thanks a lot, and can't wait for the next episode. Talk to you soon. And that was Chris Vidston of the Outcast podcast novel, which you can find at outcast.btpodshow.com. Thank you very much for calling in, Chris. I certainly understand the whole, you know, looking for something to keep you company during those long hours of drudgery. I (laughs) definitely did that myself for... A number of years, that was what got me into listening to podcasts in the first place, was a job where I basically did (laughs) the same thing over and over and over again for eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. So while it was not as uh, painful as delivering newspapers in Calgary, God be with you, my friend. Um, It was definitely drudgery, and uh, so I totally understand, yes, the need for some sort of 
musical or audio accompaniment to keep you company, and patio books definitely help to pass the time much more rapidly. So, glad to be of service to you on your long and lonely journeys. And uh, thank you for listening, and thanks for calling in. Hi, this is P.G. Holyfield, creator and producer of the Murdered Avedon Hill podcast novel. Chris, I just wanted to let you know I am just so glad that this nemesis thing has run its course. I mean, we met at Balticon, we've done bits together making fun of the uber-nemesis, we worked together on Chasing the Bard, and I'm just glad we've been able to bury the hatchet, so to speak. I mean, I even accepted your award for Best Podcast Production at the Podcast Peer Awards, and I wasn't bitter about it at all. Again, I'm just so glad we've gotten past this whole rivalry thing. That it doesn't bother you that I'm about to break onto page one of the iTunes featured literature podcast list while you're stagnating on page three. And that it doesn't push your buttons that I have, what, twice as many iTunes reviews as you do. You just have the ability to rise above such petty things as numbers and, and position and awards. Wait, you've got the awards. Um, back to why I'm here. I just want to let you know, I continue to be amazed by your story, by your production values. Hell, I even had to borrow half of your production team just to get murdered Avedon Hill to the finish line. Which, by the way, can be found at pgholyfield.com. Seriously, good luck, Chris, with the rest of your podcast, my friend. It continues to be a fun ride. Does it not? It certainly does, my nemesis. And honestly, guys... Are you going to let PG get away with that kind of trash talk on my show? I think not. If you want to help put PG in his place, why don't you head on over to iTunes and leave us a review for Metamore City to tell them what you think of the show and how you think it's just so, so much more interesting and more well-produced and more exciting than Avedon Hill. No, seriously, I don't want you to trash P.G. Holyfield. Um, He's doing a fine job of digging his hole all by himself and does not need us loyal metamorphs to sink to his level. So instead, I would like you to just go to iTunes and leave a review for Metamore City talking about what a wonderful show Metamore is and how you cannot wait for each and every episode and all the other wonderful things that you guys have been saying about it here. So just go to metamorecity.com and on the front page on the right hand side, you will see a button that says subscribe in iTunes. Even if you are already subscribed in iTunes, do not worry. Push this button. It will take you into iTunes and take you to the subscription page, which is also the page where you can leave your review. So just type that in, take a few minutes, tell people what you thought about the show And I really appreciate everybody who has already done this. We've gotten a lot more reviews already than we had just a few months ago. And I really like the things you guys have been saying. It's been very touching. But uh, everybody who has not done so yet, and I know that there are hundreds and hundreds of you, please hurry up and go do so. And then maybe we can knock uh, Holyfield down a few pegs and show him that there is still life in the metamorph movement yet. And yes, PG, it is one hell of a ride. Now, if you would like to contribute to the ongoing discussion, there are a number of ways that you can do that. First of all, you can call the voicemail line, which is, once again, 206-203-0994. You can also leave your feedback via email uh, at feedback at metamorecity.com. That is, in particular, the best way to send audio comments if you do not live in the United States and you would have to pay long-distance fees to call our voicemail line. So you can do what Governor did and just record your audio and send it in as an attachment. We can handle the file size as long as it's as an MP3 and not an uncompressed wave or AIFF. So... Please send in your comments. In audio is always best, but if you prefer to speak in text, you are welcome to do so. Uh, I am out of time for today's show, but we will read comments that people have left on text in future episodes of the show. You can also leave your thoughts on the blog at metamorcity.com, or you can contribute to the ongoing discussions at thecursed.org. That is the fan-driven forum community. 
So please go over to thecurse.org and participate in the discussion, or participate in the discussion on the blog, but please participate. We enjoy having you as listeners, and it is so much more fun when you chip in and share your thoughts about where the story is going and get to share those thoughts with other metamorphs. Makes it just so much more exciting for everybody when we make this a community. All right. Thank you, everybody, for your calls, for your voicemails, for your emails, for your reviews on iTunes. I am intensely, hugely grateful to all of you. And I hope that you all have a wonderful Christmas. I will talk to you guys again in two weeks, which will be after the holidays and, uh, well, in between Christmas and New Year's. And if the episode is a little bit late, please forgive me. I know that I can expect all sorts of interesting family-related craziness when I get back to Michigan for the holiday season. And so if it takes me a little longer, please be patient. Thank you for your understanding. And that will do it for this episode of Metamore City Podcast. Thank you once again for listening. You guys are the ones who make this possible. You are the ones who make this worth my time. And thank you so much for sharing another year with me. Metamore City Podcast has been through a huge, wild, exciting ride over the last year. And while 2008 brought us the Best Production Award for the Podcast Peer Awards, I am confident of even greater things in the coming year, 2009. So I will talk to you guys again very soon. Until then, keep it on the bright side. And this is Chris Lester saying signing out and Merry Christmas and to all a good night. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license, Find out more at creativecommons.org. Of no
Oh.